Do we have one more, or is that the last of them? Oh, oh, this one's my favorite one. Do you want some plant liquid on your hot dough slice? No, thank you. It's been partially digested by some insects. I'm listening. They spit it out, so I stole it. I'll take it. If it's almost good enough for them, it's good enough for me. Exactly. In today's passage that we're going to look at in the book of Genesis, it might feel like we're the aliens that have kind of parachuted into a world where everything seems very strange to us. Um, the Bible can do that to you. On the one hand, the characters are so relatable, right? They walk with God, but they walk with God imperfectly. They seem strong in faith one minute, and then they make obvious blunders the next. They operate from alternatingly noble motives and then questionable motives. But when we're honest, we see a lot of ourselves in them or them in us. However, once in a while, you open up the scriptures and you get a passage that just... What do I even do with this? And today can be one of those, right? It just seems like we're the little blue aliens witnessing something that we just don't understand. It is weird. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. So we're going to try our best to find our way through this. So I would invite you to stand and open up your Bibles if you have one or, or open your device. And we will look at Genesis chapter 15. We looked at the first little bit of this passage last week. Today we're going to look at the second portion of this passage, starting at verse 7. Genesis 15, 7 through the end of the chapter. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. So as I said, this is actually the second part of the conversation between Abram and the Lord. In the first, which, which we looked at last week, the Lord reminds Abram of the promise that he's previously made to him regarding a promised heir, regarding offspring. And Abraham had some questions about that. 
And if you remember where we were, uh, the Lord provided him this incredible sign, taking him outside into the dark night sky and telling him to try to count the stars of the sky and promising him, you see all those stars? Just as they are so great a number that you can't count them, so shall your offspring be. In this second part, the Lord reminds Abram of the promise to give him a land to dwell in. And in similar fashion, the Lord reminds him of the promise, but Abram has some questions. It's worth noting that the Lord initiates the second portion of this conversation. And it begins with a reminder that it was the Lord who initiated Abram's call. He starts off with, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Now later on in scripture, we hear an, a refrain that sounds pretty familiar to that. Throughout the rest of Israel's story, we frequently hear the Lord reminding his people, I'm the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The words are different, slightly, but the purpose is the same, right? The Lord always initiates and he frequently reminds his people that it was he that initiated this relationship. The life of faith is not something which we can initiate ourselves by our own efforts, by our own striving and earning. It's true that obedience is certainly required on our part, but whatever God asks of us is always in response to something that he has already done. It's in response to his sovereign call that he has already placed on our lives, which begins the process. It's important for us to remember this in our own lives as we walk with the Lord individually. We didn't save ourselves. We didn't enter into the relationship with the Lord by our own efforts. We didn't deliver ourselves from our sins. We didn't find the good way in which we should walk by our own power or by our own wisdom. And it's also important for us to remember this in our life together as a congregation. This, this new venture of faith called the church in Karenport, although it certainly does require our best efforts and our labor of love, is not primarily a human endeavor. It's a work of God. I know I might sound like a bit of a, a broken record on this, and, and thanks to changing trends in music listening, that's actually a live metaphor once again, which is kind of cool. Uh, sorry, that was free. It's important, though, that we keep this clear. If we believe that God has called us to being a people together, then bumps along the way are challenges to overcome and to grow stronger together rather than opportunities to walk away. Right? If we remember that God called us to be together, then that will inform and shape how we respond whenever a challenge might come our way. But back to Abram. He hasn't seen a lot of evidence so far regarding this promise of land that the Lord has given to him to live in. He's seen God's faithfulness in delivering him from some pretty tough circumstances. The whole uh, little side trip down to Egypt, that didn't go very well. But the Lord delivered him out of that and brought him back. And it came out all right. He's still trusting God. But he wants, he wants some certainty. He wants some answers as to this promise of a land to dwell in. And I love this chapter because in it we see Abram wrestling. He, he's going back and forth with the Lord. The Lord's talking to him and he's, he's asking questions. He's working this out with God. He's, he's a really a lot like us, isn't he? 
I think it's amazing when you actually consider the characters of the Bible, Abram and David and Elijah and all the rest, they're rightly considered great heroes of the faith. But the Bible's full of characters like them who have real human struggles, who seem to get it right and understand and trust the Lord one minute and then you flip the page over in your Bible and they're, they're wandering off from the right way, they're doubting, they're having struggles, flaws, failings. Just a few short verses after Abram has this kind of mountaintop experience that gets quoted on and on throughout the scriptures. Abram believed the Lord and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. Then he asked, but Lord, how can I know? We recognize this, don't we? We can trust God in one area of life and kind of turn around the next day and have some doubts. Or we can trust God. You've probably had this experience. You're, you're sitting alone in the morning and the house is quiet and you've got your coffee and your Bible and you're reading something and it really speaks to your heart and you're excited and, and this is meaningful to you and, and you feel that, that faith rising up in you and you're excited to be following the Lord and then 11 o'clock comes and you're getting a little bit hungry and a meeting goes kind of sideways on you or, or some, a customer is difficult to deal with and you find yourself acting in a way maybe that isn't in line with how you felt about things in the morning, spending time with the Lord. And what does God say to Abram? How does he respond? Does he say, come on, Abram, you were just believing. Because I said so, that's how you can know. No, he doesn't do that at all. As we're going to see, the Lord actually does something really incredible. Now, it's this episode of of the animals and the cutting up of the animals that kind of seems pretty weird to us. But once we understand what the point of this is, we see that something incredible actually happens in this story. Now, we read in some earlier passages that Abram built altars and called on the name of the Lord. But we don't read about him making any sacrifices specifically. And we don't read that the Lord instructed him to build altars or to make sacrifices. In fact, there have been other characters in the book of Genesis so far that made sacrifices or offerings. We might think way back at the, almost the start of the story, uh, Cain and Abel made sacrifices. And you remember how that went. Uh, Noah, after he got out of the ark with his family, he offered sacrifices to the Lord. But in neither of those cases did the Lord instruct these characters to make sacrifices. At least if he did, it's not recorded. This is the first time in the Bible that the Lord instructs someone to bring an animal and make a sacrifice. So this is very noteworthy for that reason. I think this is important. It's something that readers from an earlier age being clued into this whole sacrificing animals thing, they would have understood this. They would have paid attention right there. It's the first time God says make a sacrifice. That would have been really important to them. And so we read, uh, I'm going to give you this land. That's great, Lord. But how shall I know for sure that you'll give me this land? And then the Lord says, okay, Abram, kill some animals. And we read that and we go, that's weird. Ancient readers, though, would would read, how shall I know, Lord? Kill some animals, Abram. And and they would have thought, sorry, okay, now it's getting really serious. Something's about to go down. This This is big. You see, here's what's happening. 
When the Lord instructs Abram to kill some animals, Abram doesn't need any further instructions about how this is going to work. Did you notice that? Once the Lord just says, okay, Abram, bring me these types of animals, Abram knows exactly what to do from that point on. That's because this was part of their culture. This was a thing that people did. He knows exactly what to do. What unfolds was a recognized ceremony for making a covenant. In our modern secular culture, we don't have a lot of space left for things like a covenant. We have contracts. We have agreements. But those are generally tidy affairs written up by lawyers and other people that use words that in certain ways and it's contracted and witnessed and signed. It's pretty sterile. The ancient world, though, made agreements that were far more visceral, far more weighty, and far more obligatory. Right? We see all the time, you don't want to follow a contract. Well, you can usually find a loophole or a way out of that somehow. You get a better lawyer than the other guy has and he'll make it work for you. That's not how this works, though. There's a number of texts from the ancient world that outline the same sort of procedure. Two parties would enter into a covenant obligation, one to another. They would state, here's what I'm going to do for you. Here's what you're going to do for me. These are going to be the consequences. If you break it, these are going to be the consequences if I break it. And then the covenant was literally sealed with blood. Animals would be offered as sacrifices. They'd be cut up in pieces. And then the people making the covenant would walk together through the pieces of the butchered animals as a, as a very obvious sign of the consequences. Basically saying, if either of us goes back on our word, doesn't do what we promised to do, we will be like these animals. Like It will be our blood next time, not the blood of some calves or goats. That's a powerful, even if gruesome, reminder of the seriousness of the agreement in making a covenant. So we can only assume that it's, it's morning by now. Abram's previous vision happened under the night sky. Presumably it's morning now. Abram sets about preparing his animals. The ram, the goat, the heifer. He butchers and divides in half. The birds being smaller, I guess, he just butchers those and puts one on either side. Takes a long time. Takes him all day, in fact. By the end, vultures start circling and Abram has to drive them away. By the end of the day, I'm, I'm sure he's exhausted. This is a lot of work. But there's something worse than just being exhausted after all that work. It says that as the sun was going down, again, this has taken him all day, that a dreadful darkness falls upon Abraham. Now, if it's a movie, imagine this. If this was a movie, you know, you'd apply some weird color lighting effects or maybe you'd cut to a shot of a candle or an oil lamp getting snuffed out by the chilly wind that's coming up as the sun goes down. It's kind of, there's kind of this, this kind of creepy sensation that something scary is happening. What's going on? Why is Abram experiencing this, this deep and dreadful darkness? Because he's about to make a life or death agreement with God, that's why. He's going to make a life or death bargain with the God of the universe. Let's just review again how making a covenant worked. You make an agreement with somebody. Both parties are tasked with obligations to keep the covenant. 
And both parties commit to consequences on pain of death should they fail to uphold their side of the covenant. The problem is if you make a deal with God, who is going to be the first one to flinch? Who's going to be the first one to not uphold their end of the covenant? You are. So if you're making a deal with God, you know that this is going to, you're you're not going to be able to fulfill it, whereas God is. That's a scary thing. But then, something surprising happens. Right? The, the whole covenant thing is supposed to be the two parties each state their responsibilities one to another. I'm going to do this for you. You're going to do this for me. That's how this typically worked. But the Lord shows up and he doesn't actually announce any obligations that Abram has to do. The Lord rather just gives Abram the specific information he requested. How is this land thing going to work? How can I know for sure? And the Lord fills him in. Abram's descendants will eventually inherit this land. Unfortunately, it's it's going to take quite some time. They'll spend 400 years enslaved in another nation. He doesn't specifically say that it's Egypt, but the line about coming out with great possessions kind of harkens back to Abram's earlier adventure down in Egypt, so it's kind of reasonable to infer it. Then, after those centuries go by, Abram's descendants will come back and possess the land. The time frame for Abram has kind of regrettably been extended and stretched out further again. This is a thing that keeps happening to him. But now, he does have a promise from God that even if the time frame is long, the outcome is certain. This is a thing he can know for certain. The Lord tells him as much. The promise of a land and a home is not, is not too good to be true. It's not the Lord kind of swindling him into some real estate con. He's not trying to deceive or manipulate Abram for his own purposes. It is, however, somewhat complex. And thus the Lord goes to great lengths to make it absolutely clear that this is something Abram can know for certain and trust 100% that it will come to pass. So this is already somewhat strange. The Lord shows up. He doesn't state any terms that Abram has to keep. He just commits himself to doing things for Abram. He only makes promises. He doesn't state anything Abram has to do. That's strange. But then something even stranger happens. So this happens as the sun's going down. Abram has this deep fear and the Lord speaks to him. By now the sun has gone down, the text says. It's dark. So you can imagine Abram, whatever he's standing, he's sitting. It says he's asleep or in a trance It's not exactly clear. Whatever position he's in, you can imagine him there seeing the path between the the cut-up animals and it's getting darker and darker and, and he's able to see them less and less and finally he can't see them at all because it's dark. And then he does see something. The Bible is, as it often does when it's describing an appearance of God, is it's, it struggles to find the words, right? We, the appearance of the Lord was sort of like the likeness of a whatever. And that's what happens here. Something like a, a smoking fire pot or a, a flaming torch. Not exactly clear what that looked like. But we understand that 
this is the Lord, right? This is frequently how the Lord shows up, right? We, we think of uh, Moses at the burning bush. We think of the Israelites camped at Mount Sinai. We think of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Think of the apostles gathered in the upper room at Pentecost. When the Lord shows up, often he shows up and manifests himself in some sort of, a, some sort of flame of fire. So there's no doubt that this, this flaming fire pot, smoking torch appearance is the Lord's very presence. The Lord shows up. And he walks through the pieces of the animals alone. You see what's happened here? That's not how this is supposed to work. It's not how this is supposed to work at all. The two parties making the covenant are supposed to walk through the animal pieces together to commit one to another to the consequences for breaking the covenant. But that's not what happens. The Lord shows up and he walks through the pieces alone while Abram is sleeping or In a trance-like state. The Lord makes a covenant with Abram. The covenant doesn't lay out any obligations Abram has to keep. The Lord only commits himself to acting faithfully. Likewise, the Lord does not insist that Abram commit to any consequences either. The Lord only commits himself to taking the consequences should the covenant be broken. The covenant is unilateral. The covenant is a one-way covenant. The Lord commits to doing all that needs to be done by both parties for the covenant to succeed. And the Lord accepts all the risk, all the consequences, all the curses should either party fail to keep this covenant. Basically all that's required is Abram and his descendants trust the Lord to do what the Lord promised to do. Of course we know that Abram and his descendants didn't manage Even that. So what then? The Lord made good on his promise to obey on behalf of both parties and to take the consequences, the punishment, the curses upon himself. None of Abram's descendants managed to walk in faithfulness to the Lord. Even the best turned out to be mixed bags of faith and failure, right? We think of the best of the best like King David still Man after God's own heart, but far, far from perfect. So what then? The Lord was still committed to the deal with his people. So he had to do it himself. And he did. In the person of Jesus Christ, our God did for Abram's descendants and for all of us that which they and we failed to do themselves. But it's even worse than that, because not only did Abram's descendants fail to trust the Lord and do what they were supposed to do and walk in faithfulness, they incurred the just penalty for doing so. What then? Well, in the person of Jesus Christ, the Lord bore the penalty too. Just as a a deep and, and dreadful darkness descended on Abram that day, so a deep and dreadful darkness descended on the entire world as God in the flesh was stripped naked, beaten within an inch of his life, and and nailed up to a cross. And just as the, the flesh of those animals was, was torn and blood was shed to seal the Lord's covenant with Abram, so Jesus' flesh was torn and his blood was shed to seal the Lord's new covenant in his own precious blood. And Jesus left us a sign 
by which we can continue to remember, that is to celebrate and to reaffirm his covenant with us. In some traditions, uh, gathering around the Lord's table is referred to as Eucharist. That's perhaps a fancier sounding word than a lot of us are familiar or maybe even comfortable with. But the word simply means thanksgiving. So it's appropriate to partake in this symbolic meal on this weekend in particular. We partake in this symbolic meal even as we look forward to partaking in a large feast, perhaps with our families even later on today. However we come to this weekend, and, and I know there are, there are hurts, fears, and pains well represented within our church family. However we come to this table, before us we have a powerful reminder of his goodness and his faithfulness. So know for certain as you partake that God's love extends to you that his faithfulness upholds you, that his forgiveness cleanses you, and that his grace will carry you. Know for certain that this is his work and not your own. In some traditions, as as part of the, the communion worship service, the pastor says something like, let us give thanks to the Lord our God, and the people respond, it is right to give him thanks and praise. It is right to give him thanks and praise. You may have heard me say this on occasions previous to this, you probably have, and you'll probably hear me say it again many times. In the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, God has already provided for our greatest needs. He's provided forgiveness for our sins. He's provided reconciliation to himself. He has overcome the the two greatest things that were against us, our, our guilt and our alienation from our Father's house. If that's the case, and that's what we're celebrating today, that it is the case, that he has done those things for us, he's already fulfilled our greatest needs, already fought our greatest battle. If that's true, then we can trust him with whatever else we face in this life as well. And that is something to give thanks for. Let us pray. Our great God, we see as you, you made this covenant with Abram, the way you committed yourself to him and to your people, in absolute and utmost faithfulness, uh, accepting the responsibility to do all that was necessary and accepting the penalties, uh, the consequences uh, for not keeping it. And as we see how that eventually worked itself out, Lord, in the the life and the death and the resurrection, of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Uh, the, only, the only proper response to that is, is thankfulness, gratitude, praise, and adoration for what you've done for us. Lord, we, we praise you and we confess that we have, 
We have not been faithful, but you have. And because of that, you are worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory and all adoration. And as we come before your table now, we pray that as we remember what you've done for us, that this would serve as a, as a reminder of the promise that you will continue to be faithful as we see that you've been faithful in the past, as we remember that today. May it give us fresh hope and courage that you will be thankful now and in the future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I would invite all those that are assisting with the communion celebration to come forward, our choir, our communion servers.